ladies and gentlemen. This is Mel Fabregas from the Veritas Show at VeritasShow.com. Welcoming you to a bonus interview this time with Adrian Salpucci, an expert in geopolitics. For a few months now, a few of you have been asking me to invite Adrian on the show. However, my requests to him have been blocked and Adrian never received my invitations. Things changed today when Adrian was contacted by someone else who expressed our interest in having him on the show. He contacted me, agreed to an interview, and although we will have him on a full show in the future, he graciously accepted to do a bonus segment this week in preparation for our upcoming show. Please note that I did not prepare for this interview and it was absolutely impromptu. Nonetheless, get ready for a wild ride and many things to come. It's a great segue to this week's show with Cliff High. I hope you can support us by subscribing. Just go to our website, veritestshow.com, and click on subscribe. Adrian Salbucci is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Adrian Salpucci is a researcher, author, lecturer, and international business consultant for Buenos Aires, Argentina. Adrian specializes in the analysis of power structures, political, economic, and financial globalization. He's the host of the Buenos Aires, Argentina talk show, El Traductor Radial, and founder of the Argentine Second Republic Movement. He's the author of many books on geopolitics, international, and other topics, and include the world's mastermind, the hidden face of globalization, and welcome to the jungle, domain and survival in the new world order. And directly from the Southern Hemisphere, from the beautiful country of Argentina, I have the pleasure of introducing Adrian, or Adrian, as known in the United States, Salbucci. Hello, Adrian, how are you? Great to talk to you, Mel. I'm just fine down here. It's my pleasure. Well, it was very coincidental, folks. I was uh, doing some research today, and all of a sudden, uh, Adrian knocked on my virtual door and said, Mel, when are we going to do a show? And uh, I, I thought that for some reason he was not receiving my messages, so I'm glad that we connected. We'll be doing a, sh a full show in the next few weeks. But since I have him on, he, uh, he was so gracious and allowed us to get some minutes of his time to give us a prognosis of what he sees happening in the next 90 days well it's uh, it's it's quite a complex uh, situation that we that that the world is facing anything that is com complicated and that is potentially dangerous for the united states is naturally potentially dangerous for the entire world and i think everybody is watching very closely what is happening in the us in particular uh, one of the things that we have been uh, we have a very different viewpoint from down here way we're way down in the backyard as 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 the americans would call most of latin america or all of latin america so in a way what we are 
seeing, when you start analyzing uh, what's happening in the world and how things have been evolving, I would say that to put it in a nutshell, we have had a virtual world government ever since the end of World War II. It just kept growing, it kept advancing, it kept consolidating, it kept getting stronger. Uh, it was mostly tied into the uh, a network of a tight grid of uh, think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Conference, and so forth, who do the actual engineering or re-engineering of the world as they would like to see it, as the, the old Fabian philosophers of the 19th and early 20th century would say. But it was a, a, a world government where a lot of people would say, well, it's a sort of a conspiracy theory. Maybe it's not that way. This, this, and that. What we are now seeing, and I think that the, the country that will most suffer this is the United States of America, is that the powers that be, the global power elite, or however you want to call it, are not, they feel that the time has come where they can take a very important stride forwards from their point of view of going from a virtual world government to a formal, legally enforceable mandatory world government. I mean, this is mm -hmm. going to be a totally different creature. It's going to be mandatory. That's going to be, they want to implement global laws and rules. So every time they want to impose something, like for example, force Argentina, my country, which has a huge territory and a low population, to give up part of their territory, it won't be an outright invasion. It will be something in the interest of mankind, peace, human rights, and so forth. And uh, in that migration, and I'll wrap up the idea with this, that goes from globalization which they are now shutting down, they are wrapping it up, and towards a legal world government, in a way, they cannot tolerate a powerful United States of America. And I think that what we are seeing right in front of our eyes is that the United States is being dissolved pretty much the way when the world was taken from the bipolar post-World War II world to globalization, they knew that they had to get rid of the Soviet Union. And it took them some like 15 years of maneuvering. You can read all about that in Zbigniew Brzezinski's seminal book Between Two Ages, the role yes. of, the, of America in the technotronic age, uh, and, and, the, and the USSR went and we had globalization, but globalization Mel, is not a final stage in itself. It was merely the 20 years they needed to structure the electronics full electronic surveillance surveillance infrastructure, internet, cellular telephones, RFID chips, satellites, and so forth. And now we are seeing that. We are actually transitioning to a world government, and they cannot tolerate a powerful America. So America is really very much in the center of the hurricane this time. It honestly feels, <clears throat> Adrian, as if, the, if we were part of a game, of a simulation. We can go back to the 30s in Germany when uh, we had the, uh, the Weimar Republic and people will, wanted uh, a, a more powerful Germany. And they, of course, they voted for Hitler and we know the, the rest of the history. And at this point, it almost feels that way. We had a very popular uh, president, uh, prospective president who turned president, Barack Obama, and the, the approval rating is so low right now. And we saw it yesterday with the elections, how the tide is turning once again to the right and who knows what may happen in 2012 but could we be entering into a more of a surveillance uh, project for the entire United States and consequently to the world 
Well, you know, you know, I, I visit your country very often, and one of the first things that shocks anybody coming from just about any part of the world, except maybe the UK, is just going through your airport security. I yes. mean, man, we are all absolutely guilty until you prove otherwise. And it's the same when you go into the airport and when you come out of the airport and you have all the surveillance cameras and so forth. You see what they've done, and they've done that in Argentina too, and they've done that in this very especially in America. They've uh, gradually gotten us used to th- to to thinking that there is an enemy out there. Now it's called uh, global terrorism or the war on terror and so forth. So they find that people are voluntarily accepting these invisible chains that bind them as in any police state. I mean, uh, there's a lot of psychology. I mean, we have to understand, and Americans have to understand, that the main, the mother of all wars, as Saddam Hussein would say, is psychological warfare. That is the mother of all wars which gets people to behave in a certain manner and not to behave in a certain other manner that the powers that be want. And in a way, they really, when you go through all these security uh, controls and checks, whether it be to go into a building or into an airport or board a flight and so forth, these are all things that are geared on making people feel how puny, how small, how defenseless, how vulnerable you are when you are confronted with this, with this monstrous leviathan that can literally strip you, take you apart, not let you into the country, arrest you or do whatever. So in a way, I remember reading... Uh, uh, many years back, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's splendid archipelago gulag, where he uh, explained all the dreadful things that happened under Stalin and Khrushchev uh, in, in the former Soviet Union. And he said that he remembered how in Leningrad people trembled every night, hoping that nobody would come and knock on their door at four in the morning, because that would mean certain death or being carted off to a concentration camp or whatever. And he said, and yet these guys who would roam the streets of Leningrad throughout the night were only about a couple of thousand, and there were two, two million Leningrad citizens. Had we really organized ourselves and beat these SOBs up and made them feel scared, then they are the one. We would have really turn the table, they would have been scared to go out into the street, and would we would have won our freedoms back. So in a way, they need to keep us isolated. They need to keep us as, pota- as couch potatoes watching television like Homer Simpson doing a lot of sapping and so forth. They are scared stiff of things like what you are doing, Mel, trying to get people to think together, to work together, to organize, to not being violent, but saying, you know, America is my country, just as Argentina is my country, and we cannot allow small uh, usurping min- minorities who have no real legitimate, uh, uh, legitimate reason to be there to take our countries away from us. And it's very interesting what you said about when you visit the United States, the security lines and so on. Last week, folks, just to give you a quick story, I left my home airport, went to the airport, and for the first time, I saw really invasion of privacy in this way. I was sitting down and I saw a, an elderly lady drinking coffee in front of me. Two TSA agents, Homeland Security, approached her and asked if they could take a sample of the coffee just to make sure that it was real coffee and not a, an explosive. I looked to my left, there was a young mother with a child, about five years old. They came to the sippy cup, and they measured the the contents of the sippy cup. I could not believe it. The next day, I'm in the L.A. airport, returning home. And I waited an hour and a half in line. And the thought of being an obedient population, really, for the first time, was driven home that day. It was really a cattle line. Nobody was complaining. Everybody was obedient, moving forward. And then for the first time in my life, I had a full 
body scan. I felt the heat coming through my bones. That must not be healthy. And after that, you have to spend a minute next in line again, waiting for the image to be developed in case you have something questionable. Then after that, the full padding. I really felt completely, I don't want to say they were violated. Women perhaps feel that way. But we are accepting this. Comply or be punished. When is the end? When do we say enough, Adrian? Well, that, that, that is, I think, that uh, just as this is being imposed to all of us, because this is happening all over the world. Okay, Argentina have that, uh, uh, shall we say, that, that, that paranoid security when you go into airports, uh, as you do for, for obvious reasons because of September 11 and all that myth that was prepared. Yes. And yet we do also have something rather similar with, with other characteristics. This is all being imposed on Americans, on British uh, on Europeans, on Argentinians, on Brazilians, from the top downwards. In other words, we have in every country and on, on in the entire planet small, extremely powerful minorities who have all the technologies to really put the way they did with you at LA airport with a full body scan. Okay, fine. But then you figure, okay, so how do you how do you how do you do this? We don't have the money, we don't have the resources, we have no way of going up into the Oval Office and ch- turning this around. So the only answer we have is just as this is coming from the top down, the grassroots from the bottom. Can you repeat upwards. that last phrase? I, I lost you in that phrase. Repeat the last sentence, it, please. It's the, the solution will always have to come from the bottom upwards, from the bottom up, from the grassroots, because it's and, and history shows that time and again, it's we the people in the most in the most grassroots definition that you can possibly imagine, and in every country in the world, it's we the people who say I've had enough, I'm not going to take this anymore, like that old uh, network movie from the 1970s. You know, yes. I've really had enough, and you know, without it, that, that was a bit turned into ridicule, which is okay, but at least, you know, it, it was a good message. But we have to really understand that we, we, you see, to have national sovereignty, whether it be in America or in Argentina, you have to start with personal sovereignty. And personal sovereignty starts at thinking with your own mind, thinking with your own brain, and not allowing Homeland Security or FEMA or Fox News or CNN or the New York Times to think for you. So, you know, in a way, what you do and what a lot of folks all over the world are, what we're all trying to do is getting people to say, Get get your personal sovereignty back. Really take charge of your life. Don't let yourself be pushed around. And since we are all individually weak, because I mean, let's face it, when you go to an airport uh, line to to check in and go through security, we are all extremely and completely weak. The only chance we have is to start working together, to start clumping together. Uh, you know, the the airport metaphor, as I call it, is a very good uh, example because what happens when you decide to take a flight from L.A. to New York? for instance you arrive at LA airport and as soon as you went through the uh, uh, through the automatic doors the system sucks you in stand online here check in go there wait here go through here take off your shoes take off your belt your laptop put it on a, on a can go through here oh all of a sudden a finger points at you and says you're gonna be you're, you're gonna be f- uh, fully scanned now wait at the gate get on the plane show me your ID until it actually spits you out at LaGuardia Airport and you can say finally I can grab a cab during those six or seven or eight hours, you are totally under control of a police system. So in a way, individually, there's nothing you can do about it. But And, and I don't want to sound too, too, too revolutionary at this. What would happen if on any line, whether it be at L.A. airport or New York airport, people would just start saying maybe 100, maybe 200, maybe 300 people, this is all a farce. 9-11 was set up 
I don't know if I don't know who set it up, but it definitely wasn't uh, Osama bin Laden. Right. There are other things that you need to clarify. We've had it. I think that even the security, like like Alexander Solzhenitsyn say, even the security people would sort of stand down and say, okay, let's let, let, let's see how we handle this. And that would put the government, the authorities, in a terrible dilemma. Either they do much more violent intrusion, which will only trigger more, uh, more uh, revolution in the independent uh, spirit, or they stand down. That's the way you fought the American Revolution. You told the Brits, we've had it. That's it. You know, come what may. And that is the only chance that we have, whether it be in America, whether it be in Argentina, or just about any other country in the world. And it's all the Hegelian uh, dialectic, problem, reaction, solution. You mentioned 9-11. When we come to the realization that all the planes that were allegedly flown that day were Boeing, and there's information out there that shows that all Boeing airplanes manufactured, I, be I believe it's the late 90s or early 90s, can be taken over by the ground and remotely controlled to any destination. So in reality, even if there's a ter terrorist up there, it could be flown and landed somewhere else. So we don't need this huge hydra called Homeland Security that is now taking more of the tax money into something that I really think is not productive at all. But it has been good business, and mind you, yes. uh, you know we 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 all laugh when we've heard uh, Condoleezza Rice and, and and George W. Bush saying, "Who would have thought that they would actually use uh, commercial aircraft as bombs, as missiles?" And yet we all know that when the X Files TV series through Fox Television ended, yes. and they replaced it with that new one, The Lone Gunman, yes. the initial episode aired on Fox Television, March March 2001, of 2001, yes, showed a Boeing 727 that had been taken over by ground by terrorists and was about to be rammed into the north tower of the World Trade Center but luckily they were able to uh, seize control of the aircraft right in the nick of time and the guy I think he, he just slightly touched the, 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 the tower number one antenna with the tip of his wing sort of thing <laughs> that's exactly right and when you think about what was discussed during that pilot show not a lot of people watch it otherwise they would be talking about it more but what did they say they said the Cold War is over We need to be able to make this profitable once again. And if we have to go back to the year 2000 or 1999, when the project for New American Century, which showed that we needed a catalyst, a new Pearl Harbor, so that people could get behind the government once again. And what happened? Iraq, Afghanistan, and possibly Iran. By the way, what's your take? Do you think that the, the Iran-Israeli-United States war may still be on the table? Yes, definitely. And if it hasn't uh, flared into full-fledged violence and probably into nuclear war, because Iran is definitely not Iraq, <clears throat> it has a lot to do with the fact that in the coming world government, which is still being delayed, it's one of their weak points, they still have not been able to arrange exactly how they're going to uh, put all the pieces together with China and with Russia. So those two countries are two key countries, and they know that they cannot do anything until they bring those two countries under the phone which they might just end up doing. China would probably be the, the, the more difficult uh, one to tackle, but they know that they can, be, they can take greater risks vis-a-vis -vis China because China is the great enemy if they project things to 2017, 2020, or 2025. So in a way, they ha they ha Iran has been sort of hands-off because Iran has a military and commercial agreement with Russia and at least a very important important commercial agreement with uh, with China centered on oil obviously so they know that if they go into uh, to Iran it's going to be a totally different story altogether but i still think 
that if these guys see themselves increasingly cornered, as there are many indications that they will see themselves, especially if the, if the if we have the demise of the dollar, it's going to be very interesting to see what Ben Bernanke will be announcing with quantitative easing two that is about the, that is now in the books. They might decide to take what Israel calls even uh, in their own country the Samson option. In other words, if we can't win this, whatever, we're just going to uh, unleash all hell all hell loose for everybody, and then we'll see if after that we can pick something up from all the pieces and all the rubble. So that is probably probably the greatest danger that we are facing is that some nut, some nut somewhere, will just decide, okay, we can't win this uh, legitimately, we're going to try and win this illegitimately, let's unleash war, it's going to be nuclear over Iran, okay, Iran is going to come back at Israel, Israel's going to suffer losses, but Fox News and CNN and, and the New York Times will ensure that world public opinion cries for little Israel, will bring America to the war, and from then onwards, God knows what's going to happen. Very, I mean, that was, in a way, when you look at it, and you mentioned Pearl Harbor, that was what World War II was all about. Let's just unleash a gigantic conflagration. There's going to be dead people all over the place. I mean, they, they, if they know that to win, it's going to be necessary to have London bombed, they will tolerate having London bombed. And if New York had been bombed by a V3, well, they would have even uh, tolerated that. The important thing is, is as increasing risk and increasing volatility in the ge- geopolitical situation arises, they know that they have to double the shots. They have to call twice or three or four four times higher bets. So that's what they're doing these guys. So I still think it is definitely on the table and a lot has to do with how bad things get inside become inside America and inside Europe. Well, you mentioned quantitative easing, and that's exactly what happened today. Bernanke spoke and said that they're going to be buying close to $1 trillion of treasuries. That can only harm the dollar even more. And Incredible. of course, we're demanding that China uh, keeps the, the yuan uh, low and they don't uh, erase it. Uh, isn't that hypocritical? We're demanding them to keep it the way it is and not us? Well, yeah, and you know, if there is one country, and if you like, we can we can we can address this in 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 the future shows that you so graciously announced at the beginning of this chat. Sure. Uh, if there is one country that knows about quantitative easing and it doesn't work, it's Argentina. We went through hyperinflation in 1989, and we went through total monetary and banking collapse in 2001 and 2002. If anything, I think Argentina was a testing ground to see how you can macro-manage these types of processes. And they did it in Argentina in 1989 with hyperinflation and in 2001-2002 with banking and monetary collapse because we we were closed systems. In other words, okay, Argentina went nuts, they have hyperinflation, let's just close them off and look 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 onto them and sort of laugh as they as they try to trush it, grush their way through through. All the, all the social chaos and all the social hardship. So in a way, I think they le- learned a lot of lessons from those two experiments, which we suffered and which we are still suffering the consequences of, and they are applying them. They are applying them on the global basis. If anything, uh, just, you know, this whole financial and monetary collapse thing is cyclical. The difference is that in Argentina, the cycle lasts between 15 and 17 years. I'm 58 years old, Mel, and I went through three such crises in 1975, 1989, and 2001, 2002. Whilst in America, or in the world, they were able to make the cycle last a lot longer, almost 80 years, from 1930 to to 2008. And for most adults living today, the Great Depression is just a black and white photograph that you've seen in textbooks of people waiting online to get a free dish of 
soup from a community kitchen. You never actually live through it. When you start living through it the way we did, you start scratching your head and you say, hey, hold on, what's happening here? What's going on here? And you start realizing that this creature has an internal logic. It is a system. It is a model. And like every system and every model, when you start unraveling it, you realize how it works and you realize, realize that there is a higher purpose for them to impose these things because it also serves as a way of uh, reshuffling everything when the necessary times come about like now and of getting people into hardship because people who are having a bad time are more easily controlled through job insecurity, through street crime and so forth. And I love having a guest where I can take a globe, spin it, and point at any country and discuss it. That's my type of guest. But I remember in 1995, Adrian, in my prior corporate incarnation, in my, when I used to work in the financial industry, I gave a presentation in the Los Angeles World Trade Center, standing next to somebody you probably know, Domingo Cavallo from Argentina. Oh, yes, yeah, Domingo, 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 Cavallo. Domingo Cavallo. Whatever happened to him? Oh, he he is a fascinating story. He, from my point of view, he is the most hated villain in Argentina. He is directly responsible for for the bulk of all our all, all our all our hardships. Just to give you an example, right before our collapse, he was brought back in as economy minister of Argentina in June two thousand one. He engineered a mega debt swap because we were really in a very bad situation then, and it increased our foreign debt by $52 billion, mm. and yet five months later we collapsed, and he just left the country. Who, who is Domingo Cavallo? He is a David Rockefeller protege, and I mean directly a David Rockefeller protege, so much so that when he had to leave Argentina and go into voluntary, quote-unquote, exile uh, into New York, his first employer was the America Society, which sits right across the street, Park Avenue at 67th Street from the Council on Foreign Relations, and Domingo Cavallo is one of the four only four Latin American members of David Rockefeller's Trilateral Commission. So he definitely has people backing him. And he is always stay, they are standing in the sidelines. And there are people here who are completely aligned to this global power elite who are always giving him all uh, the possibilities to, to voice his ideas in, in, in certain newspapers and in certain TV shows. And he is always, always waiting in the sidelines to see if he can have another go and is given another chance to continue wrecking this country. He was a darling uh, of the United States back then, and what you're saying now that he was, or he is, a puppet of the Rockefellers. But at the beginning of this, this segment, you mentioned that there are attempts to take something away from Argentina. What did you mean by that? Uh, in, in a way to, take, to, to, to learn a lesson from Argentina, uh, the, the, way, the, the way they engineered hyperinflation in 1989 to see how that works, and the way they engineered a financial and, and banking collapse in 2001 and 2002 to see how people would take it. Yes. I'll give you just a small example of that. Uh, on 30th November 2001, Domingo Cavallo announced... Hey, everybody, as from next Monday, there will be a two-day uh, banking holiday. And after that, you can only take $250 per week from your bank account, whether it's a savings account or a current account. or, or And if it's a fixed deposit, you're not going to get it back until further notice. People went berserk. They went out onto the streets with the caserolas, with their pots. You better yes, remember that. Sure. We were all banging. And, and the, the banks, and not, not one single bank folded through that crisis, although 50% of our population fell below the poverty line and GDP fell by 40%. And yet, not one single bank folded. Why? 
why is that? Because they were given advance notice, six or seven months advance notice, that uh, they, that they, they could get all their act right, that they could re- uh, retrieve all the cash that was available, and they would just transfer the loss to the people. When the people realized this in 30th November 2001, it was all too late. But the, the point I want to make is everybody went berserk. It was, it was summer here. It was very hot. It cost former President De La Rua his presidency. He had to leave. Then we had five presidents in one week because nobody wanted to take over until things more or less stabilized. And what happened? As 2001 became 2002 and 2002 went into 2003, people got used to the fact that for the nth time, we've been stolen. We've been robbed. You know, the, the government has actually robbed us of our, our, our savings. The banks have robbed us of our savings. And what, the, what we call it, I call it el efecto loot. In other words, the mourning effect, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the mourning effect, which works this, like when every time we've lost and we've all had to go through, through, through that, when you lose a, 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 a loved uh, relationship or a, or a beloved friend, first you have disbelief, this can't be happening, then you have grief. And then you're extremely sad. And then, you know, the fir- after the funeral is over and so forth, you say, oh, gosh, you know, there's an empty chair at the dinner table where mom or dad used to sit. But as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months, acceptance. you get over it because yeah. life goes on. It's acceptance. Well, that's what they did with us. They engineered and say, OK, let's let these crazy Argentinians. It's hot down there. Let them bang on the banks. Let them write graffiti. Let them break a couple of windows. Why not? Windows are cheap to replace. But you're not going to get your money back. I mean, the answer was obvious. You can do whatever you like. You can scream, kick, punch, you're not going to get your money back. We did not get our money back. And if anything, people felt happy six months later if they said, well, you had $10,000. Okay, we're going to eat. We're going to do some quantitative easing. We're going to give you $6,000 back. And people would say, hey, I thought I had lost 10000 but now I find that I've recovered 6000 And they were happy. Right. In other words, psychological warfare again. They, they saw, well, how do we micromanage throughout a six or an eight or a 12-month period so that people will accept the unacceptable? And that is the greatest danger because in Argentina where people should have thrown all these crooks out, they just came back into power with different names and through a different door, through a different revolving door. And that is the danger of what can be happening in America, in Greece and Europe because, well, they have full, full control of the media and the media are the ones that are, are controlling reality, if anything. Of course. And of course, you had President Menem and then you had Kirchner. It seems that in South America, let's let's once again take Argentina as an example. It has been turning to the left. Now you have the the widow of Kirchner as the president. How is this change affecting people in Argentina? Is it for the better or for the worse? No, it's it's always been for the worse because you see... It, it, the Kirchners sound as though they were left-wing, but if anything, and this, this, is, this is a very v- important point that you've raised, what we are seeing, we've certainly seen it in Argentina, we've seen it in Chile, we, have, we are seeing it in Brazil with Lula, uh, and I think we're seeing it in, in, in many other countries, even Ecuador to a certain extent, even, even Venezuela, and, and at times Mexico, with varying degrees of, uh, of success, which is the basic ideology of the in social democratic international. The social democratic international, in a way, for South America, even for Europe, are 
I, I would describe it as the ideology for, 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 for the world government or for globalization, which in a way works very, very uh, shrewdly through three channels. On all social and cultural issues, they are very left-wing, like the Kirchner. They are against the church, against the military. They are pro-gay, pro-abortion. They are pro-human rights, always naturally from the left, not, not never from any other uh, ideology. So in a way, the people say, oh, how nice they are. They defend uh, uh, civil uh, human rights. They have the Madre de Plaza de Mayo, who are the mothers in some cases, and alleged mothers of former people who were picked up by the military regime, but also a former guerrilla. Disappeared. Yeah, they disappeared and so forth. So from that point of view, it's very left-wing. If you then go and say, okay, that's social and cultural. How are they politically? They are very center. The Kirchners are a prime example. When it comes to the political uh, aspect, they are they fully and 100% respect the political structures of the New World Order. They will bow down to them. They will do exactly as they are told. And then when you move on to the economy, they are total right-wing. They are liberal right-wing in, in the economy because, for example, Argentina is probably the country that is best poised to reject its uh, illegal foreign debt basically because it was started, it, it, it can all be traced back to an illegal government, a, an illegal military regime that uh, usurped power uh, 1976 until 1983. So what we would have to do is investigate our foreign debt and we will be able to show, hey, not only are we not going to pay huge chunks of it, we want what we we pay to be given back to us, and we want to have some sort of indemnity because we we've been uh, you know we've been milled, we've been uh, we skimmed uh, for, to pay a money that should not have been paid in the first place. Now the Kirchners would never do that; they just keep paying, keep paying, and they just roll over the debt because that is exactly what the international bankers want. The international bankers don't want Argentina to pay its two hundred billion dollar uh, foreign debt; they want us to roll it over twenty five, thirty, or as we now have forty two years into the future. It's music to their ears. Bankers don't want you to give the money back. Bankers want you to roll over your debt forever. so that they don't have forever. That's the idea. And this has been known for over four centuries and a prime example, a beautiful example. Well, Ecuador, the same thing is happening with Ecuador. They're refusing to pay the debt for the same reasons Argentina doesn't want to. Exactly. And if anything, Ecuador and President Rafael Correa is one of the few guys, and I really, I, 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 although other things were, I'm not crazy about him, I must admit that there he was definitely very good in that he was, uh, he, he has rejected Ecuador's foreign debt. He has declared a part of it illegal. He even did that with a team whose uh, chairman is an Argentinian, Alejandro Olmos, whose father actually filed a suit against uh, the uh, bankers many, many, many years back and against the state. So Ecuador def definitely did the right thing. However, uh, you know, it, it, the media that won't cover it, and uh, if, if anything, they can tolerate Ecuador because Ecuador is a small country. They're far in debt in international terms. It's only about $3 billion, which is really nothing. <clears throat> but Argentina's another creature. Argentina's $200 billion. And to become president of Argentina ever since so-called democracy was brought back in 1983, all presidents have had to say in no uncertain terms and show in their disciplined uh, behavior that they, whatever they do, they will never investigate Argentina's foreign debt. Because if we did, they know we could, we could declare it as odious debt. And if we declare it as odious debt, it could have a domino effect because many other countries can do that. We do the same. I remember too. Yeah, in 2004, after the Iraqi invasion, I remember that Bush 
condoned 85% of Iraq's uh, uh, foreign debt or public debt because it had been contracted by that monster called Saddam Hussein. And he forced the French, the Germans, the Russians, the Italians, the Spaniards, and and, and somebody else, and and the Dutch, I think it was, and the British, to go along with him. And they grudgingly went along. But I remember the French, I don't know who it was at that time, it was the the, the finance minister, I think it was a woman, she said, okay, France will go along, we will condone 85% of Iraq's debt, however, let's be very careful, because this is a very dangerous precedent that other countries can also follow if, if, if they decide to do so. They did not call it odious debt, but that was the basic idea, because we could easily turn around and say, hey, listen, if uh, Saddam Hussein was an SOB and a monster, well, the Argentine military regime that was absolutely criminal were no better. So we want to also declare our public debt, or at least that portion, which is about 70%, that can be traced back to that regime. We want to declare it odious debt. And uh, I have to ask you, Islas Malvinas, Las Islas Malvinas, Falkland Islands, yes. what was the real reason? Why do the British, well, I don't want to call it an empire because they're no longer an empire, why do they want them so much? What is the real reason? Well, let, let's, I'll try to be as, as, as objective as I can as an Argentine national. We were taught from very little at school that the Malvinas are Argentine, that they had been usurped by the Brits, uh, something like, well, at that time it was 150 years back, it would be yeah. 180 years ago from now. Uh, you look at a map and you figure, well, you know, they're so bloody close to Argentina. If, if Argentina doesn't own them, who should? But what uh, the military regime at that time with General Leopoldo Galtieri, you might remember he was the sure. guy who, who actually uh, ordered the invasion what we did was downright and absolutely stupid it was completely ludicrously stupid we ended up going to war with britain and the united states because the united states fully supported logistically britain i have an article from 1984 in the economist that shows very detailed that had it not been for u.s logistical support the brits would not have been able to 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 capture the malvinas back now why are they so interested it's not so much because of the malvinas but because the powers that be are have their eyes dead set on the Patagonia. Patagonia mm-hmm. is the southern part of Argentina and Chile, which has all the mineral, oil, wealth you can possibly imagine, potable water, grazing lands and so forth. The whole continental shelf has enough fish to feed the entire planet. And so that's one very good reason why they want to have the, the fortress, uh, Falkland Fortress. And the other good reason, which nobody talks about, and it's never in the newspapers, is Antarctica, the last continent, which has huge reserves of anything you can imagine and i remember in the 90s i was in the in, in america and I, and I was watching a, an interview that was being done and i can't remember the show but it was sort of like 60 minutes sort of show with uh, henry kissinger and at the end of the uh interview the uh, interviewer said hey uh, henry uh, let's make a ping pong of questions so he would say a word and henry would answer he would say a word and henry would answer and then he said argentina and henry kissinger paused for a moment and he said it's a dagger pointing at Antarctica. <laughs> and I said, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. And since you're speaking of resources in, in South America, are you aware of the Bush family purchasing a big lot in 100,000 hectares in uh, Paraguay, Paraguay? 
I, I've heard about it, but I don't have information that will be able to support that. What I do have information that very readily supports that is that they have purchased land in Argentina in the province of San Luis. If you look at the map, San Luis is on the Andes, uh, about two, a thousand kilometers west, due west from Buenos Aires. Because what a lot of people don't know is that when George W. Bush had his problem with drinking and with drugs and so forth, one of the places where he went, where the family actually sent him to try and get and become cured, I don't know if they ever achieved that or not, was in Argentina in a in a, in in uh, installations that belong to the present governors of uh, San Luis, a family by the name of Rodriguez Sa, you know that Argentine provinces are, many of them are operated like feudal feudal lands uh, in, in, in the hands of specific families. The Rodriguez Sa for San Luis, uh, and for example, the Menems for La Rioja, and the Kirchners for Santa Cruz, you know, they, they, they run them like feudal lordships and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Bushes have a particularly good relationship with the Rodriguez Sa family because they really put uh, George W. in a very discreet, very low-profile way into, for, for I think it was for almost a year, in the province of San Luis, and those uh, business and friendship relations do have uh, resulted in the Bush family acquiring large tracts of land in um, San Luis, which is just part of a model, because the way that they are taking over Patagonia and the better part of our territory is through friendly investments, and I say friendly, quote-unquote, and uh, ecological uh, uh, concerns. So you have not only do you have Ted Turner down here, you have Douglas Tompkins. He actually Douglas Tompkins is another uh, environmentalist who literally bought so much land in Chile that he split the country in half because he brought out a huge tract of land from the Pacific Coast to the border with Argentina. You have the uh, pro-Zionist Elstein and Soros families. You have uh, Luciano Benetton. You have Joe Lewis who uh, the Air Force found out by coincidence that he built a huge runway smack in the middle of Patagonia for his own private use for the time being. And you have many, many other indications that, uh, you know, environmentalists and so-called investors and people gobbling up huge tracts of land might be the way that they are preparing for the takeover, at least of Patagonia. Uh, Just one example, in 2008, it came came out in the press here that uh, uh, an an NGO, a non-governmental organization called the Nature Conservancy, had also purchased large tracts of land here because they were concerned, listen to this, they were very concerned about the grasslands of Patagonia. Well, the the CEO, chairman and CEO of the Nature Conservancy NGO is one Henry Paulson, who at that Mm. time was the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States and former CEO of Goldman Sachs, Sachs. and the entire board are all uh, ex-Goldman Sachs people. Now, what the hell does Goldman Sachs care about Patagonian grasslands? Obviously, they know. But uh, going back to the 2006 purchase of that uh, uh, piece of land in Paraguay, it was done through Bush's daughter, Jenna. And uh, it's sitting in one of the largest aquifers in the world, in Paraguay, in surrounding three different countries. Paraguay, Brazil, I believe uh, Argentina. Uh, yes. why, why are all these powerful people moving down or buying? Is there something that we're not aware of? They're doing this in preparation of what? 
Well, yeah, they, they, there's a lot of readings that you can do on that. The uh, aquifer you're referring to is the Guarani aquifer. Guarani, correct. Exactly, right below northeastern Argentina, southern Brazil, and Paraguay. And it is something like 35,000 cubic miles. I repeat that, 35,000 cubic miles of potable water under under the ground. So, you know, there's a lot there. I would say that, in a way, a lot of these guys, the, the, the rich and powerful, the, the, the 934 billionaires that appear on the, on, on the Forbes list, for example, yes. are preparing and they probably have a very well prepared plan B that if everything were to go to pot and if America were really to go into a civil war and if there were to be nuclear war between Israel and Iran and if Europe well Europe is in a very uh, dreadful uh, geopolitical situation and position and if all were to come to worse and we need to move away for a couple of decades until, until things clear up and clean up well if there is one place that you would want to go is southern Argentina and southern Chile just not, don't even look at it. Just think of a map in the of, of of a map of the world, a Mercator projection. You draw a line right smack in the middle, which is the equator, and you will see that some like eighty percent of all the world's land is north of the equator, and only a small part of it is south of the equator, which is mostly water. You have half of South America, about a third of uh, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and that's it. And that's then it. you have Antarctica, and then you have Antarctica. What do you, your sources tell you about Antarctica? What's really there? Well, that 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 would be a, a long, a full uh, show, a full show. Yeah, because it's it's not just the economic resources and the potential for uh, even for, for for many things which a lot of people don't know about. Because uh, Antarctica, it would appear, and contrary to what official science and, and and the Discovery Channel would lead us to believe, is not all ice. There are water lakes and there are even some moderate and, and even moderate climate water uh, lakes in Antarctica and there's a lot of talk about that having been researched and investigated since a very very long time and that they have found things which are rather different from the ones that uh, official science would have us believe which might help to explain and I, and I, I call it one of my own personal blunders, my, one of my greatest personal blunders. In 1961 the Antarctic Treaty was signed amongst uh, some of like 20 or 25 nations and it, uh, it, 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 re it didn't recognize, it just sort of noted that there were seven or eight countries which had uh, territorial claims but they would all be frozen you had the British Antarctic Territory, you had France, you had Norway, I think you had the former Soviet Union, the United States, of course, and then Chile and Argentina, for, geograph for obvious geographical reasons, also said, well, we have a claim here, but it, it, it was superimposed with the British Antarctic Territory. So that treaty in 1961 said, leave it at that. Let's just sort of freeze all these claims. The treaty was ex actually expired in 1991, 30 years later. And I thought at the time, my big mistake, now they're really going to go for all of it, they're just going to kick Argentina out after the, the Falklands. They're going to tell the Chileans to stay put. And yet 1991 came about and they just merely extended the treaty for, for some like two decades into the future or three decades into the future, which means that there is probably something in Antarctica which we are not being told about in full, full honesty. Uh, it might go back even to some of the uh, German explorations from 1935, 36, 37, 38 yes. on the other side, Neuschwabenland. And mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, what one has to be very cautious when, when addressing these things, but there definitely is something out there that is not being uh, told to the general public. I saw footage in color from the expedition that you probably heard of Admiral Byrd yes. showing what looks to be almost tropical land, green and lakes and beautiful. And then I've seen 
envelopes coming from what we call Little America in Antarctica from the 30s and 40s. There's obviously something there that we're not aware of. Could it be that the Nazis lost the war, won the peace, and they made it all the way down there? Well, uh, that is that is uh, one of the things that is being toyed about. Look, I, I, I'll tell you one thing, because, you know, when it comes to the, the, the uh, Nazis and all that, there's a lot of myth that has been uh, created and generated, some innocently, some on purpose after World War II. But a lot of them are supposed to have come down to this part of the world. I remember I was brought up in New York City. Uh, in the 1960s, I went to school, and I remember when, when it was very much in style for kids to wear buttons on their lap, lapels and so forth. One of them that always caught my eye was Hitler is alive and doing well in Argentina. In Bariloche. In, in Bariloche, yeah, whatever. <laughs> in 19, that was in the, in the, in the 60s. But uh, I was uh, very well acquainted, and he was my personal friend until, unfortunately, he passed away last year. And I, so I can say this publicly now, of a former Chilean ambassador, Miguel Serrano, who was the ambassador to Chile uh, from Chile to India, to the former uh, Yugoslavia, and to Austria. So, and, and he was a very cultured man, and he knew people like Hermann Hesse. He became a very good friend of Hermann Hesse, Carl Jung, Indira Gandhi, and so forth. He was a, and uh, Yarwal Nehru. He was a very cultured man. And he also investigated all these things, and uh, he uh, showed me because he had been had been in touch with people from what was called the Anen Erbe, which was a sector from oh, yes. the... Uh, Still alive, uh, by the, the way, the Anen Erbe. Yeah, from the SS, and they had a lot of things that, uh, well, what apparently were not captured in Berlin in 1945, and he had some of the original diagrams showing craft, a disc-shaped craft, that apparently ran on a different type of technology, which they described as implosion instead of explosion. Uh, it, was, it was based on the works of scientists who were not uh, Nazis. They were, there was no ideology there. Uh, called, one of them was Schaumberger, and the other one was Koller, which they said that because of the way uh, the elasticity of certain fluids, which can be reproduced in magnetic bottles and in magnetic uh, uh, fields, uh, they can have the, an effect that looks very much alike, although it is not that, it looks very much alike to uh, compensating or even neutralizing gravity. So instead of being explosive technology like our jet turbines or, or our rockets going up into space with huge explosions of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, or even our internal combustion engine, which puts fuel and air into into a spray and makes it explode you know everything explodes in in this occidental in this western world they use something very different it was a very cold technology it was implosion instead of explosion centripetal forces instead of centrifugal forces and it appears that they had gone a long way on that and that they even decided not to give it to the to the german politicians to the hitlers and the Goerdings and the goebbels of the time and they just left and that probably ties in with the fact, Mel, that after World War II, there are about a hundred U-boots, or say, in other words, the uh, uh, German submarines that are unaccounted for. And two of them, at least we know about two of them officially, actually landed in Mar del Plata in southern Argentina on the beach and in uh, San Clemente del Tuzú, which today is a very nice uh, beachside uh, resort after the war. And nobody ever really knew who was on it, what cargoes it kept, and so forth. And you have plenty of uh, sections in Argentina, Chile, and even in Venezuela. I remember going to Colonia Tovar, which is mainly German. But you mentioned something very interesting, and I feel a little bit of uh, information magnanimity right now. I have one of my, and we'll close this way, I have one of my guests on the show, I'm not going to name names to protect uh, his identity, but he told me that a few years ago was taken, uh, you could say, by force, a hood placed over his head, 
He was put in a vehicle, and he was taken to an undisclosed location. He was taken off the vehicle into a room. They removed the hood over his head. And guess who entered the room? Former U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush. This guest has traveled around the world in search of uh, secrets or clues hidden in plain sight in many ancient structures around the world, pyramids and so on. He's been able to connect a lot of dots, not only about our origins, but about technology. Those in control via the UN are making a concerted effort to keep this ancient knowledge hidden or forbidden. At any rate, former President Bush asked this person, how in the world do you know all of this? He was honest and said that he was studying this for decades. And then Bush told him, well, you will keep your mouth shut or else. <laughs> is that understood? Well, he found out this was the Ananerba, which is a brain tank from the Nazi era. So it's still alive. Exactly. And Bush is part of it. And that's all I can say for now. Yeah, and don't forget that <clears throat> one Prescott Bush. Prescott father Bush is the, for the H father, sure. Yeah, and, and, and grandfather of George W. Yes. He was a member, well, through the Brown Harriman Brothers banking uh, system. They had very close ties on a financial level with, Hitler. with the with, yeah with the German. Actually, it wasn't directly with Hitler. It was with the, it was if anything, it was through one uh, guy called Hjalmar Schacht who was Hitler's finance minister, he was a banker. He was not, neither a Nazi or anything. He had so much protection that although he was, he was judged at the Nuremberg trial, he was completely released. Nobody bothered him or anything. And Hjalmar Schacht had a lot of dealings with American banks and British banks. He was a close friend of the Bank of England governor at that time, one guy by the name of Montague Norman, a very, very high, well-positioned guy in British masonry, Freemasonry. <clears throat> and uh, th it was through through Hjalmar Schacht that a lot of these connections went through. Because, I mean, we have to go back to the 30s and 40s where you had very close borders, very strong nationalism and so forth. So it would be a little bit naive to say, well, Prescott Bush actually sat down on a bar and discuss things with Hitler. He didn't need to do it that way. It was done with, uh, through different ways. And one of the key figures to keep in mind is this a banker, Hjalmar Schacht, who died many years ago. He was very nationalist. He helped uh, uh, put the German uh, finances into order, especially after the Versailles Treaty consequences and so forth. And uh, yes, you know, I mean, we shouldn't think that, uh, you know, ideologies like Nazism were just, you know, uh, limited to Germany or limited to Austria or limited to, to the countries that were its allies. You also have them in America. You have them in Argentina. You have them in Chile. You have them all over. What I do remember, and this is one of the things that my, my Chilean friend Miguel Serrano showed me, is he had the original newspaper clipping from the uh, Santiago newspaper El Mercurio. Which oh, is yes. Very, very prestigious. A wonderful newspaper. One of the best, actually. Much better than anyone in Argentina. I'll tell you that much. It's still and going. That, yes, it's still going. And that clipping was from, uh, I think it was July 1947, and it had Richard C. Byrd saying... Work, because he, he had gone to Antarctica on a six-month mission, and he came back six weeks later. Correct. And he said, the greatest peril for America today comes from the Poles. The North and the South. Ha. Folks, we're so privileged to have uh, Adrian Salbucci here today, and we are. This is a preview of things to come. I will arrange an interview with him in the next few weeks, and I'm so excited. I mean, we can be talking about so many subjects, the Nazis, what's happening in South America, the New World Order, 9-11, you name it, the dollar collapse. And tomorrow, uh, you probably know who Cliff High is, who 
appears in your friend's show, Jeff Wrench. You know Cliff and yes, Jeff, of yes, course. Yes, yes, yes. Jeff is great, great friend, a great guy. So give us some uh, closing remarks for this uh, segment. And of course, I'll get in touch with you to uh, iron out a date in the near future. Uh, Adrian, give us some concluding remarks. Well, absolutely, Mel. Uh, concluding remarks, I think that what Argentina can bring to the table, and I can do this because luckily since I was brought up in America, I speak English r relatively well. Very and well. Spanish relatively well, too. So I can sort of bring to the table other stuff. And you mentioned 9-11. One of the things we can talk about in, 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 in the next show that you, you were mentioning is we have false flag attacks here that are so very similar to 9-11 that when you start putting together all the bits and pieces, you figure, well, they all seem to have the same style, the same modus operandi as, as the mafia. Mafia would call it. So, uh, you know, we might be able to, 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 to add something to help understand how the whole global uh, scheme of things works. From my end, I would, I would really like to thank you enormously for the privilege of being on your show. Uh, if I may, anybody who wants to see what the stuff we're doing, my, my website, sure. may, may I say this on the air? Of course you is can. www.asalbucci, that's A-S-A-L-B-U-C-H-I.com. Dot AR. And anybody who sends me an email or contacts me, I'd be more than delighted to, to you know, to, 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 to chat and then to exchange ideas. Because as I say, it's we the people, the grassroots down here, that as our minds open up, we will be more and more and we will reach critical mass. And when you reach a critical mass of people who are aware and who know what to do, things tip over very suddenly. And you know, Mel, that critical mass is much, 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 much smaller than most people would imagine. Adrian Salbucci helping us connect the dots on a global scale. I look forward to speaking with you again, my friend. Take care. Thank you. Gracias. Un gran placer y te mando un fuerte abrazo desde Buenos Aires. Igualmente. Saludos, Adrián. Chao. Saludos. Hasta luego. And that was Adrian Salbucci. I'm sure you'd agree that Mr. Salbucci deserves his own full show. He has already agreed to one, which should air in the next few weeks. So stay tuned as we explore more of the global machinations that are hidden in plain sight. All we need is a high-caliber researcher like Adrian Salbucci to shine the light ahead of us. Thanks for listening to this Veritas bonus interview. I'm Mel Fabregas. Until next time, be well, and remember, be skeptical, but don't close your mind.